morning, church. It's great to see everyone here this morning. I think I'm going to start with the introductions while the offering is going around. So for those of you that don't know me, my name is Johan, and uh, we've been in this church, my wife and I, Tara, and our two little sons, they haven't been here since 2011, but we've been here since 2011. Yeah. They joined us along the way. So we've got Aaron, he's three years old, and then we've got Jonathan, he's four and a half months old, so two boys, and they keep us uh, on our toes. It's uh, the best thing that's ever happened to us, but uh, it's definitely another speed. So the treadmill has been set up, uh, running slightly faster. But it's, uh, it's a fantastic privilege to, to be a parent, as all parents here would know. So it's great this morning to be here. Uh, Jesus and I work alongside each other in finance and investments. So we focus on private equity investments. Uh, in other words, we, we try and invest in unlisted private companies for a return. So that's what Jesus and I do during the week. And uh, the rest of the time, Jesus and I try and raise, a, raise kids and, and be a good husband and etc. So um, this morning we're talking about calling. Uh, the series that we're starting today is God Beyond the Building. So we're going to have four weeks of talking about God Beyond the Building. Today we're going to talk about God at work, living out the fullness of your calling at work. Next week we're going to talk about building a platform for, you, for yourself at work in order to leverage off of what God has given you, your, your affinities, your abilities, and the opportunities that He's given you to build a platform where you can most effectively transform and reach out to your workplace and your colleagues and have an influence not just there but also in wider society. And then in the third week, we're going to talk about community. We can only live out our calling, the fullness thereof, in community. We're irreducibly social beings. So um, that's where God has called us to live out our calling in, in relationship. Rainer will be speaking about that, and then the last week we'll be speaking, we have a guest speaker here, and we've given him free reign, we trust him, so uh, it should be good, it should be very good, uh, so that'll be the, the pinnacle, the culmination of the series. So we've got four weeks of talking about God at work, us at work, and how do we take God with us, and how do we live out that fullness right there where we are at, Monday to Friday. We can't just afford to live out our callings on Sunday mornings and Wednesday evenings, we can't just afford to go to work in order to get money to feed our kids and ourselves and just survive and then arrive back on Sunday for a little bit of edification and then go back again and go to drudgery. If that's our lives and we live for weekends and we live for holidays, it's a good gauge to know that you might not be living in the fullness of your calling where you're at. Because if it's only for weekends and, and holidays, we're missing out. We've got one life and we need to live every single moment of it in God's, in God's epicenter with him as the focal point. So let me start. I think I have started already. So we, we all want to make an impact, right? We all want to live significant lives. We want to dent the universe, as Steve Jobs said, just leave a little dent in the universe. Ralph Waldo Emerson said, we just want to leave the world a slightly better place. We want to know that our lives have made an impact, that we didn't just come and go and didn't leave an imprint. And I want to tell you this morning that your life is supposed to leave an imprint. You are supposed to leave a dent, and all of us can leave a dent with God alongside us in this universe, and you can do that wherever you are. So calling doesn't equal work, but work is a very big portion of our calling. It's estimated that people will spend about 150,000 hours of their lives or 40% of their lives at work. So it's a big portion of your life. It's a big portion of your calling, and we need to ensure that we activate it where we're at. We need to ensure that when we go to work, our mindset is, this is from God, this is inherently good. Because many times the Christian lie that many of us believe, and I believed it for a long time, is that work is a result of sin. 
because of the fall of man, work entered the world. So I don't know how I, I believed that, but I did. And many of us do. We think that all we can remember when we think about work in Genesis is the fact that God told Abram, oh, sorry, Abram, he told Adam, <laughs> he later spoke to Abram, but he told his, his predecessor, Adam, that you need to, by the sweat of your brow, you will toil the ground and you will gather food and eat your daily bread. That's all we remember when we think about, that's all I remembered, let me just say that, that rather, for many years. When I thought about work, I thought about that sentence in Genesis. And that's in Genesis 3, after the fall. But actually, if you go to Genesis 2, verse 15, it says the following. It says that the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work and to keep it. So before the fall, before sin entered humanity, God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So there's a guess we need godly bankers, especially. We need godly politicians, even more so. And we need godly stay-at-home moms. We need godly people to take up a calling, the fullness of their calling in the workplace so that God's plans for the workplace can come to pass. The world needs that. And that's what we need to bring in this world. We need to tell people about him, but more so, not more so, but even the same, the other side of the coin is we need to go in and transform the places and the areas where we live. We call to evangelize the Great Commission. We call to teach and instruct, disciple and baptize. But at the same time, the other side of the coin is transforming spiritual realms, transforming the natural order as we go into our buildings, our places of work, our teams. That's what we call to. But calling many times sounds like a mystical thing. Many times, for many years, I thought that calling is something that God's going to give me in a dream. It's going to be a vision. He's going to manifest himself to me in a dream. It's probably going to be in a tongue, and then I'm going to have to get the tongue interpreted, and then I'll know what my calling is. In a moment, I'll know exactly what it is. So that can happen. It has happened in the past. There's examples of God commanding a calling unto someone and very clearly in a moment. But probably it won't happen. It can happen. But probably it's going to take a bit of a process for us to find out what our calling is and where we call to. But it isn't something mystical. It isn't something elusive. It's something that all of us can grasp and all of us can walk in. So if you look at calling, you can essentially break it into two components. Firstly, primary calling. There's a primary call, singular, one call. And that is a call to every single person. It's by God, to God, and for God. So every single person has been called by God, to God, and for God. And if you think about it, I shouldn't forget about you guys. Eh? If you think about it, <laughs> you, um, you call to someone. You call to someone before you call to something, before you call somewhere. So before you have to and need to worry about where do you need to go live out your calling, before you worry about what do you need to do, what's something you need to do, you need to know that you've been called to someone into relationship. And that is a call. It's a singular call, a primary call that's been leveled at every single person that's ever been born. Then you get a secondary calling. Secondary callings, they are plural, so there are many of them. And you have a unique secondary call. It is your, your way, it's your personal why, and the way in which you respond to that primary call. So you have a, a why that's unique to you. There's a why that only you can live out. And as you live it out according to God's word, by faith, and focused on him, glorifying his name, that is going to be your response to that primary call, to him, by him, and for him. So that secondary call and that primary call applies to everyone, everywhere, and in everything. So we shouldn't think that 
It applies to someone else, but not to us. But there's a couple of distortions that have crept into our thinking. Two that I'm going to focus on specifically. The one is called the Catholic distortion. It entered the Catholic Church at the beginning of time, beginning of the Catholic age. And uh, essentially, <laughs> it's, um, I'm not dissing them. I'm just saying where it originated. So this is the notion that there's sacred work and secular work. The notion that there's a primary call, and a, but not the primary call I spoke of just now, and then there's a permissible call. So primary service, let's call it service, is to be a priest, to be a monk. It's permissible to be a farmer, but it's a bit of a second-tier calling. So that thinking and notion has, has crept into, into our thinking, even Protestants. I mean, if you think about how we refer to people that work for the church, they're in full-time ministry. If we refer to someone in full-time ministry 99% of the time, you're referring to someone that works for the church. If you answer the primary call to enter into a relationship with God, then you are a full-time minister. You have entered into full-time ministry. Your secondary calling, your personal why, will inform you as to where and how you live out that response to that primary call. But you're in full-time ministry. So if you ever catch yourself talking about full-time ministry or thinking about full-time ministry as Reina, Liana, or Amant, and Jamie, then you need to just reassess your own assumptions because you're in full-time ministry. In the classroom, at work, at home, changing a diaper, and we'll maybe get to diapers just now, you are living out your full-time ministry. So Martin Luther wrote the following. He said, The works of monks and priests, however holy and arduous they be, do not differ one whit in the sight of God from the works of the rustic labor, laborer in the field or the women going about her household tasks, but that all works are measured before God by faith alone. So whatever you do, if you do it by faith, if you do it to make a name for God and to glorify His name, that's sacred. So you can have a priest doing all the right things, but if it is to make a name for himself, if it isn't done by faith and not to glorify God, then what he's doing and involved in is secular. So it's not what you do, it's who you do it and why you do it, why you do it. We'll get to that later. Martin Luther also went on to write in the Estate of Marriage in 1522, saying that God and the angels smile when a man changes a diaper. So I think in my case, God not only smiles, he probably rolls around laughing many times. <laughs> we, had, we had one of those incidents yesterday morning, and every parent will know that when you uh, attempt to extricate a soiled nappy, you do it by faith, you have to. Yeah? <laughs> I don't know, I'm not, I'm not tough enough to do it without faith. But you open the lid, or whatever you want to call it, by faith. <laughs> and yesterday, I, I was, staring back at, was staring back at me. It was one of the most intimidating sights that I've ever seen. I probably looked like a deer caught in headlights. It was that moment of fight or flight. So I know that the best defense is offense. And, and I wish the Springboks knew that or applied that yesterday in the last 10, 15 minutes. Or should I just, should I flee? Maybe they won't find me. Maybe my, my face will go into some milk carton, but if I get away with this, then I don't need to live up to what I need to do now. Any case, I'm sure God had a ball, and uh, he helped me through it. But even that, even the stay-at-home mum doing that 
and making food, if you do that to glorify God, if you do that to make a name for Him, understanding the importance of what you're doing for your children, bringing them up in the Lord and in His Word, washing them with the Word, then what you do there is sacred. It's a sacred act. You're looking after a, a person. You are stewarding that person's life because you've been entrusted with that person's life, and that includes cleaning him or her physically. So calling means that everyone, everywhere, and in everything has been called by your secondary calling to respond to God's primary call, to enter into a relationship with Him. Now, just quickly, there's a second distortion, and that's the one I touched on earlier, quickly. Work doesn't equal calling. Calling doesn't equal work. Your calling starts before your work career. Your calling will continue after you retire. You cannot retire from a calling, and you first call to be before you call to do. So even though you spend a massive portion of your calling and your life at work, and this is why being activated at work in your calling is so important, we need to understand that vocation and calling doesn't equate to work. Okay, so we need to understand that it's bigger than that, but work is a very large portion of our calling. So we can live out our calling 24-7, in other words. Evenings, weekends, holidays. It's not confined to your workplace. It's great if you activate it there because essentially then you activate it in at least 40% of your life, but you should be activated in 100% of your life. And your calling permeates every single aspect of your life. So before we go and fall into the notion of secondary calling, how do you find it, what does it entail, Let's start off by saying that we need to start with who? Identity before destiny. Simon Sinek's got a book, Start With Why. It's a great book. I love it. But as Christians, we know that it's, there's one step before why, and that is who. So we first need to understand the person that God created before we can understand the person God called us to be. So it's who and who am I in Christ before why am I? We need to understand that we are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a chosen people, we need to understand that God loved us before we loved Him, that He loved us while we were still His enemies. We need to understand that He knows us intimately. Before we were born, He knits us together in our mother's wombs. So He had a purpose for us. He still has a purpose for us. He knows you intimately. Every single day of your life has been laid out. He knows you, and He's called you. In John 15, verse 16, it says that He has called us, and He's called us to be fruitful. So our confidence in our calling needs to primarily focus on the fact that we know who we are in him as son or daughter in the family, in his family, holy family. We need to know that he loves us, he knows us, and he has called us. You need to know that. He loves you, he knows you, and he has called you. If you know that, if you know that you are a son or daughter in the house, yes, we are human beings, we're imperfect, we fall short of his glory, but at the same time, because of the blood of Jesus, we can run into his arms, we can run in with dirty feet into the house, and he'll still embrace us because of the blood of Jesus. We can boldly enter his throne room. If we understand that, it'll help us to better understand our why and better apply our why. So for us, it doesn't start with why. It's very important. We're going to get there next. But it starts with who am I in Christ? So answering the call, that primary call, is the most spectacular and ultimate why that we can have. And a why, let's call your secondary calling your personal why. That calling, that why, cannot be invented. It can only be discovered. So you can't go and sit down and say, okay, I'm going to invent my calling. No, unfortunately not. You have to discover your calling. 
You've got, you can apply choices, you can, you can make decisions, we've been given a free will and we'll get to that now, but inherently deep within you, ingrained in who you are, in your person, God has made you for a specific call and he's designed you and purposed you for that call, which means you need to go and discover what your call is. So how do you do that? Maybe before we go into how you do it, just a quick side note, the clarity of your calling will help you carry you through the chores of your calling. Because no, no calling is chore-free. If you're looking for a chore-free calling, it doesn't exist. Every single calling is chore-filled. And it's the clarity of that calling, knowing your why, understanding your secondary call, why you, why and how, eventually, and what you're going to do to respond to that primary call that's going to carry you through those chores. So many times, most of the time, the secondary calling, that personal why, comes by promptings and beckonings from God. It does happen that he commands a calling. So Jonah knew that he was going to Nineveh. His only decision was his mode of transport. Was he going to take boats or whale? But that's the decision he had in, in that regard, that he was going to Nineveh. So it does happen that God can command a calling, but most of the time it's promptings, it's beckonings, and we need to spend time with God. So there is essentially the key to finding your why. After you know who you are in him, how do you find your why? The first words that Jesus speaks in John is found in John 1.38. He turns around to in two of the disciples and he says, what do you want? What do you want? That word zetio, the Greek word, Greek word means what are you seeking? What is your deepest desire? So Jesus is interested in knowing what, what your deepest desire is. And he knows, essentially, but he wants us to know. So that's why he poses the question, because he wants us to go and discover our deepest desire, our deepest longings. He created us, but he wants us to go on that discovery journey, that adventure with him to find out what our calling is. The disciples then gave one of the weirdest answers in Times Memorial by saying, where do you stay? So they asked, what do you seek? And they say and respond saying, where do you stay? So obviously they didn't know what they wanted. But I think maybe the reason, maybe they didn't know it, maybe they, they did know why they asked the question, but maybe they asked Jesus, why do you, where do you stay? Because they inherently knew that by spending time with this man and living life with him, they will find out what their calling is and what their deepest desires are. So they didn't have an answer there. But three years later, after sharing life with Jesus, for three years intimately being involved in storms, being involved in teachings, being involved in persecution, etc., living with Jesus, at the end of three years, they could answer their call because they knew who they were and they knew why they were here. They knew the deepest desires because it was in reference to Jesus and his life. So John also uses the Greek word meno 33 times in his gospel, and it means to abide in, to rest in. And I don't think that's an accident. I think that is the answer once again. We need to abide in Christ. We need to rest in him. We need to stay in tune with the vine. Jesus says in John 15 verse 5, I'm the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he, he is that bears much fruit. He it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. So many times we don't understand ourselves. We think we do. We um, think that we know ourselves better than anyone else, including God. If you look at Psalm 119 verse 105, it says that your word is a lamp for my feet and a light for my path. 
Note it doesn't say a mag light or a torch or one of those fancy bike lights that gives you 100 meters visibility. It's a lamp that lights your path in front of you. So you see the next one, two, three steps. And I think also that is by design. God, God is intentional. He's a God of purpose. So he's saying that because we need to come back. He knows that it's better for us to come back ever so often to his word and to him in prayer to, be, to receive that light for our path, that lamp for our feet, to know where, do, where we're going, the next two, three, four steps. If we could see the next year's worth of decisions and things coming, we'd firstly be very intimidated, and secondly, we will forget to rely on Jesus. So we need to continually come back to him and that instruction manual, which is the Bible, and spend time with him in prayer. The other day, Aaron turned three, and he loves cooking plastic eggs and making plastic toast and feeding us endlessly with these plastic items. So we'll see whether he grows up to live out his secondary calling in the kitchen or not. But for now, he loves it. So if you ask him now, he's going to tell you probably that he'll be a, a three-hat Michelin chef. So we bought him a stove and a countertop set, one of those, not IKEA, but IKEA-type prefab ones that you should be able to set up in 10 or 15 minutes. Should be. That's the operative uh, phrase. So I looked at the instruction manual, not being DIY inclined, but being a man and knowing everything. I looked at it once, I glossed over it, and I started working. Halfway through, uh, Tara came to me. She stood there for a minute or two. She looked at the instruction manual. She looked at what I had in front of me, half assembled. And uh, she said, I think the uh, shelf that you have bolted onto the countertop should be on the other side of the countertop. Because this picture shows that. <laughs> so already irritated, knowing that she is wrong and I'm right, I went to go and look at the instruction manual. I looked at it intently. I found the right picture. And I saw, I immediately knew what I saw. <laughs> I saw that the manufacturer had made an error. <laughs> the manufacturer's picture is incorrect. <coughs> Terrible. I was already irritated with this thing that didn't work as told, and it took me already 30 minutes by then. And um, now, over and above everything else, this manufacturer has given me an instruction manual. If I do want to look at it, it's incorrect. The fact that I had, it, had, it has pre-drilled holes in for you, but the fact that I had drilled two new holes <laughs> into the other end of the countertop to put on the shelf didn't really bother me, because obviously that's also another error. I can see the pattern here. This manufacturer and their processes are erroneous. So in any case, after a lot of hard work and disassembly and reassembly, He's got his stove, and he can make us food to, its, to his heart's delight. So Aaron is in, in love with his stove. But the two holes in the countertop, at the front of the countertop, that shouldn't be there, for me, is a reminder at least, that I don't know everything. So every time I see those two holes, I realize that I don't know everything. And in the same way, I don't know everything about myself. I'm still in the process of even learning who I am in Christ, and then after that, I'm still learning even more so what he's called me to and who he's called me to be and why I'm here. But I cannot rely on glossing over a verse or two here or there and then carrying on for a year thinking I'm right. Because if I can get it wrong in 15 minutes in a little um, 
stovetop assembly example, then how long can I get it with flight? So instead of wasting time and working unnecessarily, expending unnecessary energy, disassembling and reassembling, I can just go to God first and ask him, what do you think? What should I do here? Remind me again who I am and you and why I'm here and what's my personal call? What's my secondary call, which will inform the way I respond to your primary call? So Tim Keller has got a nice little method or toolbox to look at personal calling, that secondary call, that why, to try and help us to, to get there. Because as I said earlier, it's not mystical. It's, it's, it's right here. It's real. We can live in the fullness of our calling. So he says, look at affinity. So what are the things you're naturally drawn to? What are you passionate about? Look at those things. God made you. When he asks the disciples in John, what do you want? What do you seek? He's asking, what's your deepest desires? What's your passions? He has given you passions and desires. They have to be redeemed many times, but they're there and they're given to you. So what's your affinity? What are you drawn to? And then, secondly, your ability. What are you good at? What are the strengths you have? He's also given you those, and you're allowed to use them. And then thirdly, opportunity. What opportunity or opportunities has he laid in front of you in your life? So if you look at affinity, you're looking out. What am I drawn to? If you're looking at ability, you're looking in, saying, what am I good at? And then if you're looking at opportunity, you're looking up, saying, God, what opportunities have you placed in front of me at my door that you want me and you've created me to address. Frederick Buchner, the U.S. theologian, said that the place God calls you to is the place where your deep gladness and the world's deep hunger meet. Or meet. So your deep gladness, that place where you can live out your affinities and your abilities, if you can get that place to that place where the deep hunger of the world is being met, that opportunity. If you're in that sweet spot where those three overlap, it's a very good indication that you found a very good portion at least, if not the fullness of your secondary calling. If you went back to the cathedral building age in Europe and you went to some of those stonemasons, so I don't know, some of you might know, but those cathedrals took hundreds of years to, to be built. Generations used to build. So a stonemason would get his tools from his dad and he would hand over his tools again to his son. There's a whole sermon in that. But if you would go to a stonemason in France and ask him probably in French, which I can't do, someone might be able to, if you ask him, Matthew, <coughs> if you ask him, what are you doing here? You might find a stonemason that tells you, I'm building a wall, um, day in, day out, I'm standing in the sun and I'm building this wall. Since I can remember, I've been building this wall. I'll probably die building this wall. But here I am, trying to make a living. Then you go to the next stonemason, in front of another section of the wall, and you ask him, what are you doing? And he'll say, I'm building a wall, but I'm building the wall of a great cathedral. I've had the opportunity and the privilege to be working on this since I can remember. I will probably have the ability and the opportunity to do this until the end of my days. I'll have the privilege of handing over my tools to my son, and I know that I'm building an awesome cathedral where my descendants will be able to worship their God. So that's two different stonemasons, right? 
working on the same piece of wall, involved in the same what. So what they do is exactly the same. But who they're doing it for and why they're doing it differ. So the first stonemason doesn't see the bigger picture. He's not doing it to glorify anyone but himself. He tries to get some food on the table, look after his family, and this is his lot because this is what he, that's his ability. He can build a wall, and he's average to above average stonemason. But that's it. Then you get the second stonemason. His why is bigger. His why is outside of himself. And he's working for God. He realizes that I'm working for God, and I'm applying my personal why, and with this what, which is incidental to my personal why, informs the way in which I respond to that primary call. It's two different people doing the same thing. So what I'm getting at is, whatever you do, it can be, it can be secular, it can be sacred. Your answer to who you're doing it for and why you're doing it will determine whether what you do is sacred or secular. That's the only difference. We... We try and super-spiritualize this thing and find this what that is just glorious and sacred. Any what can be glorious and sacred if you're doing it, as long as it's not immoral or illegal. It can be glorious and sacred because of who you're doing it for and why you're doing it. That's the only difference. So that's how, how, even if you don't know the fullness of your secondary calling and exactly why, you know bits and pieces of it, what you're involved in day-to-day day can already be sacred. You don't need to wait for some miracle answer or audible voice from God before you can enter into sacred work. What you do now can be sacred. So if you work for the audience of one, that's the audience we need to work for, then what you do is sacred. doesn't matter. Your what's incidental. There could be a few what's over your lifetime. Different jobs. You can even shift from one career, one industry to another industry. So you don't need to worry too much about the what. Timing is important. Wrong thing at the right thing at the wrong time is the wrong thing. Timing is very important. But whatever what you find yourself doing, as long as you're doing it for God, to glorify His name, doing it by faith, you have an intimate relationship with Him, and you're not doing something illegal or immoral, then wherever you find yourself now, you're meant to be, and whatever you're doing is sacred. And we need to understand that because we need to become activated in our places of work. We can't afford sitting around thinking that when I get this answer from God regarding my secondary calling, then I'll start doing sacred work for Him. Your what can be sacred right now. And many times calling is identified in hindsight as well. Soren Kierkegaard said, the Danish philosopher, said that life can only be understood backwards, but must be lived forwards. Steve Jobs in his 2005 Stanford commencement speech spoke about the fact that you can only connect the dots when you look backward. He dropped out of college, he took calligraphy classes just for the fun of it because he liked nice topography, he learned about what makes great topography great, and it seemed inconsequential and random. Ten years later, when he was develop developing the Mac, all of that came back to him, and the Mac was the first computer with typefaces, beautiful typefaces, and nicely spaced lettering. All of a sudden, he could connect the dots looking backwards. Many times, we can't see it looking forwards. And that's nothing random, it's nothing wrong with it. You don't need to feel debilitated by that. Focus on your what then, do it for God, and do it to honor Him and to glorify His name, and you can rest assured that what you do is already sacred. I touched on it quick, quickly earlier, but many times for me, for years, in, the, in my workplace, 
I focused on evangelism and salvations. That was how I measured or gauged my, my efficacy and whether or not I'm actually venting the universe. But many times there were seasons and mostly I mean, the, the level of or the amount of salvations that I saw, is, it's minimal. And obviously the Holy Spirit saves, but he uses people to, as his method. So we are expected to engage and to evangelize, right? By the way, the best form of evangelism, I believe, is relationship. So a great place to evangelize is in your workplace where you build real relationships. Um, I like that model quite yeah, better than some of the others. But what I, what I realized was is that I felt debilitated and despondent because I didn't see salvations. But then I realized there's another side to the coin, and that's transformation. Me being in a meeting, me being in a building, me being in a team brings the fragrance of Jesus, the presence of Jesus, and it brings change. The difficulty is you can't measure the counterfactual. You, can't, you cannot. So the parallel universe where you are not at that business, in that business, not in that team, there isn't something like that, by the way, but the counterfactual, just to explain that, you, you, you don't know. If you weren't there, it's difficult to measure and say, where would, where would this business, this team be? Um, how profitable, how unprofitable, how happy will the clients be? How happy will the employees be? Um, how much value would, be, would we be adding to society or not? It's difficult to measure that thinking about the scenario where you weren't there. So it's a difficult thing to measure, but it's empowering, knowing that when you go into a meeting and you uncompromisingly remain true to God and your calling, answering that primary call by your secondary call, you are influencing decisions, strategy in your business, and you're bringing life. You're lifting morale just because of who you are and what you bring, because our lives are supposed to be transformational. So if you realize that, there's two sides to the coin. Both are equally important. But it's not just evangelism. It's evangelism and transformation. For me, it was liberating and empowering, realizing that there is another side to it. I'm actually, the efficacy of me being there is much more than I thought it is because there's this whole other side that I've forgotten about and never focused on. So lastly, we need to, we need to persevere. To think that a calling or a work, a what, will be 100% fantastic and that every single morning you'll jump out of bed and be inspired, it's delusional. Maybe if you're an astronaut, I think it's probably the closest you can get to, to a scenario where you're completely and all the time inspired and jumping out of bed. And I guess that's also not even a perfect job. So we need to understand that much work is drudgery. Abraham Lincoln said, in politics, every man needs to skin his own skunk. So you will find times in your calling and at work doing your what where you'll feel like you are a skunk skinner. There's nothing wrong with that. You're not walking in disobedience to God. You haven't missed it. It's, this is just part of life. It's building character. And we need to have conviction. We need to have staying power. Because calling without conviction is ineffectual. Conviction without calling is delusional. But the two combined... Conviction plus calling gives us the energy and the empowerment to endure. And we need to be able to endure. Abram waited 25 years 
for the promise to be fulfilled in his life. Moses waited 40 years for the fullness of his calling to come into bearing. Jesus, the Son of God, waited 30 years before he could walk in the fullness of his calling. So if you're waiting, if you feel like you're waiting, and you're tired of waiting, and you're alone, you're not alone. You're in very good company. You've got Moses, Abraham, Jesus with you there in the waiting room. And with God, time in the waiting room is part of the consultation. We need to understand that there's a preparation that needs to take place. When the opportunity comes, we need to be prepared to take that opportunity of a lifetime in the lifetime of the opportunity. We can't start preparing then. So time in the waiting room is part of the consultation. Don't be dismayed. Don't, don't be discouraged if you only see in parts. Timing is super crucial, and God's timing is perfect. I said it earlier, the right thing at the wrong time is the wrong thing. So we need to know that we have to endure, and we need to understand that the promise comes before calling. You receive a promise. You might have received the word. God might have spoken to you audibly in prayer via the word, but you just don't see it come to bear. You shouldn't be discouraged. You should know that the promise does come before the calling. Lawrence of Arabia wrote the following in Seven Pillars of Wisdom. He said, all men dream, but not equally. Those who dream by night in the dusty recesses of their minds wake in the day to find it was vanity. But the dreamers of the day are dangerous men, for they may act their dreams with open eyes to make it possible. This I did. So to fulfill our destinies, we require both determination and discernment. Many times we stop because we failed, we're afraid of failing. So fear of failure is debilitating. Sometimes we, we don't even start because we're afraid of failing. Sometimes we fail once and then we stop. I missed it. This must not be my calling. I must be on the wrong route. J.K. Rowling, the author of Harry Potter, cannot believe that I'm quite quoting her in a sermon, <laughs> said the following about fear of, fear of failure. It is impossible to live without failing at something unless you, unless you live so cautiously that you might as well not have lived at all, in which case you fail by default. So that is profound. If you think about the parable of the talents, the first two servants got the same exact reward. Why? Because they went out and they traded with those talents. They placed it at risk. The one made two talents for, the other one turned five talents into ten. They got the exact same reward because the reward was not based on the return. It was based on the fact that they went out by faith, and they traded, they stewarded what they were given, the resources. The third servant didn't. He didn't take any risk. He didn't apply any faith, and that's why he was scolded. So I believe if there was a fourth servant who traded and placed at risk the resources that he was given, and he stewarded it, but he lost it, everything, he would have received the same reward as the first two stewards and servants. Because it's not about the return. It's about us applying faith living by faith, risking failure, because failure is not the end. We learn. In Proverbs it says we fall seven times, but yet we said the righteous man will get up again. And we can't take shortcuts. Once again, timing is crucial. In 1988, at the Summer Olympics in Seoul, Korea, Ben Johnson won the 100 meters in a record time of 9.79 seconds. He was the hero of the games, Jamaican-born Canadian sprinter that made history. But three days later, his world came crashing down as everyone realized that he was doping. He took a shortcut, and all we can remember, most people, if you mention the name Ben Johnson, you think traitor, cheater, doper. You don't remember the great athlete that he was. He did beat Carl Lewis legitimately at times. 
but we forget that. All we remember is that shortcut and the failure and the exposing nature of it. Rather, we need to say, as Paul said in 2 Timothy 4 verse 7, I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. And I'll end off with the same encouragement as what Paul gave us in Ephesians 4 verse 1. He said, as a prisoner for the Lord, then I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. So we have received the calling. Every single one of us is loved by God, known by God, and have been called by God. Every single one of us has got a secondary calling, a personal why, which will inform the way in which you respond to that primary call, which is by God, to God, and for God. A relationship, a call to someone to enter into relationship. So you don't need to pray and fast about the primary call. It's pretty evident. You need to answer the primary call, and then you can ask God, how do I need to answer this primary call? What is my personal why? And what, what will be incidental to that personal why? Thanks, everyone. I'm going to end off with prayer. Lord, we thank you that, that we know that you, you love us, Father God. You've, you've made us, Lord Father. You, you loved us before we loved you. You loved us while we were still your enemies, Father God. You know us, Father. You know us intimately. You knit us together in our mother's wombs, Lord Father. Thank you, Father God, that you want to enter into a relationship with us. But our primary call, Lord Father, each and every person's, is to be called by you, to you, and for you, Father God. We thank you that you call us to someone, and that someone is you first and foremost, Father, before you call us somewhere and before you call us to something, Father God. Thank you, Lord Father, that each and every person is empowered and enabled to respond to that primary call, Father God, and that you've given us each unique giftings, Father God, unique desires and passions, Lord Father, and unique opportunities, Lord Father, and where they overlap, Father God, we can be sure that by faith, Lord Father, we'll find at least a very good portion of our secondary calling, Father, our personal why, which will inform the way in which we respond to your primary call, Lord Father. I pray, Father God, that you'll, that you'll lead us and guide us, that you'll remind us, Lord Father, that for us to, to know who we are and why we are here, Lord Father, the, the easiest and most important and sometimes the most difficult thing is to just spend time with you, to abide in you. It's as simple as that, Father God. Help us to abide in you, to remain in the vine, Lord Father. Thank you, Father, that as we remain in you, as we spend life with you and share life with you as the disciples did, Lord Father, we can go from asking you where you're staying, Lord Father, to answering your actual question. What do we seek? Knowing our personal and most deepest desires and passions, Lord Father, that you've given us, Father, the abilities that you've given us, Lord, and the opportunities that you make available to us, Lord. And we thank you, Father God, that, that you're in control of this process, Lord Father, that you give us perseverance, Lord. Thank you, Lord, that you give us the grace, Lord Father. Your grace is sufficient to help us, Father, even skin the skunks along the way, Lord Father. Thank you, Father, that as we keep our eye on the why, Lord Father, as we, as we seek that clarity of calling, Lord Father, that we can know that as long as our what is done for you and to make a name for you, Lord Father, and to glorify your name, it is sacred, Father, wherever we find ourselves, at home being a stay-at-home mum, in the classroom, in the bank, in the church, wherever we are, Lord, our what will be sacred if we do it to make a name for you, Lord Father, working to you and unto you as worship, Lord Father. Thank you, God, that you love us, you know us, and you've called us. In Jesus' name, amen.